We hear people say, if you think it, you can do it. And also, if you believe it, it is true. But there are objective issues that limit that. I mean, if you think it, you can do it. Well, I grew up, I played sports. I was on a high school football team. Our junior year, we went to the state quarterfinals, 3A. We had a very good year. We played a team, though, in the quarterfinals that were the perennial powerhouse, had won the state championship several times. They were bigger than us, stronger than us, faster than us. They had a number of athletes going to major schools in the area. We had three or four guys, two on played for the Guilford Fighting Quakers. How's that for a, a nickname? Fighting Quakers. Anyway, um, so we, we played this team. The newspapers were talking about the game. They said that we were overmatched, that we probably would lose. And, and my coach was just a crusty old guy, very unemotive, just stretched stress the fundamentals of the game, his heroes were these guys, Vince Lombardi and Frank Howard, which means that we never passed. And we had student body right, student body left, student body up the middle. We had four or five plays. That was it. But anyway, the day before this state playoff game and huge electricity, he called us all together, did something he never did. He said, guys, if you, if you go out there with a winner's mindset, you can do this. And so he went around the room. He pointed to certain officers. Do you believe we can beat this team? Yes, coach, I believe it. And, and he said, I do too. And he walked out of the room. And we jumped up. And that's before you high-fived. We just hit each other. You know, the high five, some of you, we started beating on each other, you know. And the next day, we were just sky high, and we went to the game, and there was a huge crowd, and the TV was there, and we, we were focused. We played well against this bigger, stronger, faster team, and we got beat 41 to 13. <laughs> we got annihilated. Because, you know, to be honest, there, there come, if, you, if you think that you can do it, that's just not, there's an objective standard in athletics. A few years ago, this guy spoke at our wild game banquet. Each year we have a wild game banquet here at the church. It's going to be February 12th this year for the men of the church when all the men give up their vegetarianism for one night only. <laughs> and we come together and we eat meat and we hear a speaker that presents the gospel. David Thompson, who played for NC State, was the speaker a few years ago. David Thompson was an All-American at NC State. He had a vertical jump, some say of 42, others say of 48 inches. I mean, that's just you stand up and you jump that high. He was an incredible athlete. In fact, he was voted the most outstanding athlete in the ACC basketball, edging out Michael Jordan in the 20th century. Great athlete. Talked about how he came to faith in Christ. And he had all these guys on the front row, you know, just transfixed to be in the presence of this great athlete. They'd never seen him play, but they heard about their daddies and their granddaddies talk about him. Hall of Famer. And he said this, he said, if you work hard, practice hard, you can be a great athlete like me. I almost thought, whoa, 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 whoa. Now, I know if you parse that sentence, you can be like me. But still, I said, Michael, these guys... Most of them are white. They're going to be 5'8 to 5'10. And they're going to be like me. Two inch vertical jump. They're not going to be great. Now they'll be, they're gifted in other areas, but come. See, objective athleticism hits reality. Now you transition that and you hear people say in this day and age, if you believe it, it is true. We don't believe that. We, we believe that God has spoken, God is, and He's given us His Word. We believe truth is objective truth called the Scripture. 
Listen to what 2 Peter says, or uh, chapter 1. Peter just talked about seeing Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration. What a privileged experience he and James and John had. And then he says this, and we have something more sure. Listen, something more sure than an eyewitness account of Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration when Elijah and Moses came down and his clothes became white as snow. And a voice came from heaven and said, this is my beloved son, listen to him. That would have been an experience. But Peter says, we have something more sure than that. The prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture came from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And Peter says, we have something that's more sure, the prophetic word. The church is built on the proclamation of the prophets and the apostles. This is the more sure word. So, so we, we are people who say we, we have the, the, the sure word of Scripture. When it comes to epistemology, we don't say if we think it's true, we say God says it. God has spoken. It's a revelation. So, so we're looking at this Psalm 139. This is the last Sunday we'll look at it as we begin the new year. Psalm 139, which talks about the character of God as the God who knows everything, the God who is everywhere and sees everything, and the God who is the creator God. Let me just read the first 17 verses of this psalm. Listen. Oh God, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are fully acquainted with all of my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol in the lower parts of the earth, you are there. If I rise with the early morning and make my and go to the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness will cover me and the light about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you form my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious are your thoughts to me. 
How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. So the, the psalmist just says, God is gloriously good. He is everywhere present. He knows everything. He is the God who's the creative God of all glory. So I, I'm going to talk about God, the creator God this morning. And I, I'm going to speak about specifically in part about the issue of abortion in our culture. And I'm going to speak as a pastor, not as somebody who studied medicine, because I have not. There are many medical people here that can speak so much more adroitly and insightfully about the medical issues than I could begin to ever do. I'm going to speak as a pastor. I'm going to speak based upon what Scripture says. So, so first of all, we believe that the Bible teaches that man is made in the image of God. And therefore, every man is worthy of respect and Christian love. Every man, woman, boy, and girl has dignity. Here's a couple of statements. This is from the Gospel Coalition, Article 3. We believe that God created human beings, male and female, in his own image. Adam and Eve belong to the created order that God himself declared to be very good. Serving as God's agents to care for manage and govern creation, living in holy and devoted fellowship with their maker. In part, the Baptist faith and message says this, man is the special creation of God made in his own image. He created them male and female as the crowning work of his creation. The Nicene Creed adopted by the church in the fourth century says that, that the Holy Spirit is the giver of all life. Conversely, there are those who say that man is not made in the image of God. I mean, there's a guy named Edward Carnell who late in his life said this about modern man and their approach to mankind. He says, modern man appears to be but a grown-up germ sitting on a gear of a vast cosmic machine which in some day uh, is destined to cease functioning because of a lack of power. Jean-Paul Sartre, the French existentialist, said, man is nothing more than useless passion. There's a man named Peter Singer. I'm going to quote a few things from him. Peter Singer uh, said this in 1979. He said, human babies are not born self-aware or capable of grasping that they exist over time. They are not persons. Therefore, the life of a newborn is of less value than the life of a pig a dog, or a chimpanzee, 1979. Five years later, listen to this, five years later, he was appointed as a professor of bioethics at Princeton. Princeton. Uh, Princeton, who year after year, Princeton is named as one of the top five or three or even the best university in America, Princeton, that is teaching our leaders of tomorrow. He's, he's teaching them this. A couple more quotes by Singer. He talks about functionalism. He says that, that what defines a human person is what they can and cannot do. And he says this, as for the doctrine of the sanctity of human life, it is nothing but speciesism. He made that word up. Speciesism means that we, when we elevate mankind above the other animals in, the, in God's creation and say man is a crowning work of God's creation, we're guilty of speciesism, like racism or sexism. 
It's an irrational prejudice rooted in outdated religious traditions, i.e. Christianity. Insofar as some human beings are incapable of reasoning, remembering, and self-awareness, they cannot be considered persons, but simply dogs, cats, and dolphins are persons, while fetuses, newborns, and some victims of Alzheimer's disease are not human beings. He argues that moral claims are mere preferences and not obligations. He argues and still teaching at Princeton that you should have 30 days or longer to end the, the life of your child because you determine if it's a human being. Now, I read that, and I think I'm reading Brave New World by Aldous Huxley or maybe The Hunger Games. But th- that is a worldview. So I'm, I'm just going to talk about the, the glory of being made in the image of God. See, the psalmist, he, said, he, says, he says, you know, surely if I say the night about me is darkness, and that will cover me, he says, no, the, the night is light to you, God. It is, it's, you are everywhere, and you see everything. He says, and I rejoice in that, because you're, you guide me by your hand, and your right hand holds me. He says, I, I praise you because I am, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it well. My, my, my secret frame was not hidden when I was intricately woven in the uttermost parts of the earth. Just a celebration of life. So, so brief history, 1973, by a vote of 7 to 2, the Supreme Court voted that, based upon the 14th Amendment and, and privacy, that, that abortion in the first trimester was the law of the land. And since then, of course, that parameter has been pushed further and further and further back to where now they're, they're really... No, basically no barriers. But since 1973, and if you're under the age of 58 or 56, you do not remember a time when abortion was not used as a means of birth control or gender selection or personal convenience. You don't remember that time. Since, since 1973, we as a, as a nation have aborted 57 million babies. It's horrible. Our, our population today is somewhere around 310 million so just, just think about that. At, at this point, though, I, I want to just stop. Just stop. And uh, as I was working on this, I, I, I was praying through the Apostles' Creed. The last part of the Apostles' Creed says, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church. It means all God's people for all the ages, small c. The communion of the saints for all the ages. The forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. I said, God, thank you for the forgiveness of sins. There are people here today who are involved as parents, as the mothers, as the fathers, as the friends have been involved in abortions. And and it is, I, I just say with great passion, there is full forgiveness in Jesus. There are also people sitting here today who just feel crushed and overwhelmed and despairing because they think of that abortion that may have happened 30 years ago. And I, I just say, do not, do not let the enemy browbeat you. Look to Jesus. There's forgiveness. Macbeth by Shakespeare, a play about a man named Macbeth who is in league with Duncan's wife. They kill the king of Scotland. Macbeth comes, becomes the king of Scotland, and he takes as his wife, the dead king's wife, Lady Macbeth. 
And so in Act 5, at the end, Lady Macbeth just cannot get over the fact that she was participant in the death of her husband. And so in Act 5, she, she's sleepwalking, and, and she walks through the house, and she's rubbing her hands together, and she says, out damned spot, out, out damned spot. And what she's saying is, I, I, can't, I can't get the blood of my husband off my hands. And we're led to believe in the play that she, she takes her life because she can't get over her guilt and her pain. And, and, and her, the man who helped her kill her husband has this famous soliloquy. He says that she should have died hereafter. There would have been a time for such a word tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. And he says this famous line, out, out, brief candle. Life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is no more. It is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. So, so Lady Macbeth represents despair. Despair. Macbeth represents callousness. So she would have died one day, out brief candle. Life is nothing more than a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and full of fury. Life doesn't count. So, so to, to me, so many times when you're involved in, in, a, in a, a situation a number of issues where, where you don't come to Christ, it's easy to become despairing or just callous. And I, I think of the hymn, just um, Marvelous Grace of Our Matchless Lord. It says, it says, Marvelous Grace of Our Matchless Lord, grace that exceeds my sin and my guilt. And then the last stanza goes, Dark is the stain that I cannot hide. Lady Macbeth, see? What can avail to wash it away? Where do I go? Look, there is flowing a crimson tide, whiter than snow I can be today. There is forgiveness at the cross of Christ. We all have dark stains. Some deals with this issue of abortion. All of us have stains somewhere of some variety of some kind. We all do. Don't, don't let the adversary do the Lady Macbeth and drive you to despair or make you cynical. Go to the cross. I was, I was thinking about this, and I, I was thinking about Proverbs 28.13. Um, and Proverbs 28.13 says, um, Whoever covers his sin does not prosper, but whoever renounces and forsakes it obtains mercy. So when you cover it up, you just you never deal with it. But you confess and renounce. And then I was, thought about James chapter 3, and it says this. James chapter 5, excuse me. It says, uh, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. I just said, you know, we... we Frequently as elders, we anoint people with oil and lay hands upon them and pray for them in the name of Christ, that God would heal them. But, but it also says here that confess your sins. And I, if, if it is wonderful to stand up here as a pastor of the church of Christ and to say your sins are forgiven by the work of Christ if you trust Him. But sometimes you need a, a personal word. And if you, if you are dealing with an issue, whether it's this or other issues, 
come to see one of the pastors or the elders. And we can bring our wives. Let us just pray with you and, and say, as, as an ordained, set-apart leader of the church that Christ has established to bless the world, I proclaim to you in the name of Jesus, your sins are forgiven. Do not go into despair or callousness. So, so please hear that. Please hear that. So back, back to a little historical side note. In 1979, I was a second-year seminary student, and there was a seminar that went around the country taught by the man on the left, is a guy named Francis Schaeffer. So wonderful, important to me. And the man on the right is Everett Koop, who became the Surgeon General in the Reagan administration. And they said the church needs to stand up and speak for those who cannot protect themselves. And so they had this uh, event called Whatever Happened to the Human Race. And I went to the premiere showing in Dallas, Texas uh, with my wife-to-be. We were going to be married uh, less than a year from then. And uh, I was a, a second-year seminary student, and she was in the third grade. I know that's what you're thinking, so <laughs> I'll go ahead and say it. But we went to uh, Whatever Happened to the Human Race, and it was just kind of a landmark moment for me. I, mean, I was, knew what I believed, but they really helped me solidify it. And then that seminar, Francis Schaeffer says this, if, if man is not made in the image of God, nothing then stands in the way of inhumanity. And it's interesting, he was saying this when Pol Pot was murdering 1.6 million people in a 10 million population country called Cambodia. There's no good reason why mankind should be perceived as special. Human life is cheapened. We can see this in many of the major issues being debated in our society today. Abortion, infanticide, euthanasia, the increase of child abuse, and violence of all kinds, pornography, the routine torture of political prisoners, close quote. See, I think he's right. If man is not made in the image of God, if man is just some type of cosmic mistake. So so that that kind of put me on that path, and I studied, and a couple of times on college campuses, I deborted, excuse me, I I, uh, debated the abortion issue after reading and studying, talking to some professors and and I remember one such situation in Texas Women's University. I was there, they had a, this discussion, and I represented the pro-life, and there was someone from Planned Parenthood Dallas who came in, a young woman, and she debated the other side, pro-choice. And I remember very clearly talking to her and, and listening to her, and she said, let me make this very clear. We would never, ever, ever support abortion after 12 weeks, unless, and this is the caveat, is for the health of the mother. Never. And I, because she says, we believe at 12 weeks it becomes a human being. That is no longer the mantra. Now it's a personal choice. Now, now it's all about choice or preference. And I, and I go back and I say, how in the world do you debate that issue? Someone says, well, I just, I just want to do it. Well, it's taken of life. Well, I want to do it. So, so we, we, we step in the, up and we say, well, we believe the Bible teaches that God knit us together in our mother's womb. We were fearfully and wonderfully made. Let me just read some statistics to you. This is, this is wonderful, uh, just to me. At two weeks in the, in the womb, there's a discernible heartbeat. 
At six weeks, fingers are formed on the hands. I love little fingers of babies. Fingers, six weeks. At 43 days, the unborn baby has detectable brain waves. After six and a half weeks, the embryo is moving. At nine weeks, the fetus has developed a unique state of fingerprints. By this time, the sexual organs of the male have already appeared, so the gender of the unborn baby can be distinguished. The kidneys also have formed and are functioning. By the end of the 10th week, the gallbladder is functioning. All the organs of the body are functional by the end of the 12th week, and the baby can cry all in the first trimester. So, I mean, people will say to me, well, oh, man, she'll say, we're pregnant. I'll say, she says, we're just been, how long? Six weeks. And I'll say, you, your baby has fingers. Fingers. It's amazing. Intricately woven, fearfully, wonderfully made. So, Psalm 139, just three points. Number one, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. We're intricately woven. I am made in the image of God, the Bible says. Therefore, every man, woman, boy, and girl has worth and significance and is worthy of Christian love. So C.S. Lewis gave a series of lectures, and it's in this little book called The Weight of Glory. It's a great read. He said this in 1949. Lewis, lecturing in England, says, all day long we are in some degree helping each other to one of these destinations, glory or judgment. It is in light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, and all politics. There are no ordinary people. You never talk to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilization, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors, or everlasting splendors. He says, there are no ordinary people. There are people made in the image of God. And so we, we work and we labor and we cry for justice and mercy and love for people. Martin Luther King, writing from a Birmingham jail in 1863, said this, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. I love that. An inescapable network of mutuality. See, truth bleeds or sin and error bleeds in other areas. And so we glory in the fact that we're fearfully and wonderfully made. It's a double-edged sword. Man is worthy of respect and Christian love. And therefore, we must speak. The Baptist Faith and Message is our confessional statement. 2000, it says this. In the spirit of Christ, Christians should oppose racism, every form of greed, selfishness, and vice, and all forms of sexual immorality, including adultery, homosexuality, and pornography. We should work to provide for the orphan, the needy, the abused, the aged, 
the helpless and the sick. We should speak on behalf of the unborn and contend for the sanctity of all human life from conception to natural death. Every Christian should seek to bring industry, government, and society as a whole under the sway of the principles of righteousness, truth, and brotherly love. We should speak with the Spirit of Christ. Secondly, our days are ordained, it says in Psalm 139. God knows our days. He's lovingly given us our life. So I should live with responsibility and celebration and with a keen stewardship to finish well and live well. Very quickly because our time is running. Number three, the psalmist says, God, if I could even begin to, to, to number the thoughts you have towards me. They're vast. If I could count them, they are more numerous than the sand. I awake and I'm with you, Lord. God loves me and has a plan for my life. God loves us. God cares for us. He is our Abba Father. He's the great creator God. He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And, and so I, I just step back and I, and I look at this. And I'll, I'll just address one more issue from, from, from the sermon outline. What, what must we do in response to our culture? And I, I just said this. So we, we must repent, pray, plead, and do good works. We need to repent. Brothers and sisters, we repent of not speaking with grace about this issue. We repent of letting this become part of the landscape of Americana without standing up and weeping. We repent because when you cheapen life in the womb, you cheapen life everywhere. We, we must pray for revival and pray for returning unto Christ and pray that God's Spirit would grip our hearts. We must plead with grace and dignity. We must plead with people. I mean, I just thought about it. you're sitting at, at home and Someone mentions they're, they're, they're pregnant at a family dinner, and, and, and you say, you're pregnant? That's one. Did you know that by the ninth week, your baby has fingerprints? Did you know by the twelfth week, your baby can cry? Isn't that, isn't that amazing? Isn't life a gift? Let me tell you something. I, I, don't, I don't know. Anybody can ever be at a birth and not worship the Creator God. I don't, I don't get it. I, I just, I know I'm a believer. God has worked in my heart. But I remember sitting there watching my kids be born and going, <laughs> I mean, ah, there's no word. There's no word. What a privilege. I'm sorry for those of you that are really old because you got stuck in the waiting room. You couldn't be there. Man, I'm so glad I was there. My soul. Good grief. Anyway, we should plead in our political process. We should elect men and women who understand that life is a gift from God and they, and they will vote to put up parameters to limit this situation. Plead for people like that. See, it's not a political issue. It's a biblical issue, brothers and sisters. People say to me, you're just a one-issue one voter. I'm going, no, I'm not, but this is paramount. I'm telling you, this, this trumps tax increases. 
Not against that too, but that's beside the point. It is a great sorrow in my heart that Planned Parenthood last year from our government received a grant for $540.6 million. That's half their budget. Planned Parenthood is an abortion mill. And they got that from us, us taxpayers. We should plead. We should do good. The Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 2, For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. When you do good, you silence people who speak pejoratively against what we believe. I celebrate people who work at the Low Country Pregnancy Center. Selflessly. Caring, giving, serving. I'm so glad we're involved in that ministry. There are many people here on the board and have been on the board. I I celebrate people who who adopt, who are foster parents, who who by doing these things, they just just silence it. I celebrate people who, who just do good. See, our purpose statement as a church is equipping people to pursue Jesus, to impact the culture. So we need to train up people who think biblically about life and about the parameters of life and the privilege of life who stand in awe of a creator, God, who made the heavens and the earth and boys and girls and dogs and cats and the sunrise and the sunset. And you just go, wow. And we live with awe and celebration and worship. So we should repent, pray, plead, and do good. That's who we are. It's not true because we say it's true. It's it's true because God is and God has spoken. And we live there. Let's stand and we'll close in prayer. Pray together. So Lord, we we now come into your presence and we, we would really plead for you to uh, grip our hearts with your message regarding uh, the glory of who you are, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You're the great creator, God. That you are the one who, Lord, just step back. Amazing, amazing. As my mama celebrates her 84th birthday to think that you knit me together in my mama's womb and every person here. Same standard. They were intricately and wonderfully made. Unbelievable. And we step backward and we look at our life and we say, if I could even number the thoughts of God for me, they're like the sand on the seashore. It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. And God, forgive me for not living with gratitude. And I, I just pray that as a church that we would repent and pray and plead and do. Um, I pray that we would equip each other and the coming generations to pursue Jesus passionately so that they would go out and speak with grace and dignity and brokenness and conviction to our culture. And Lord, you would hasten a day when we would see revival in our land. And we, we just pray for that. We pray for this man that we ordained in the first hour for Steve Heron and Suzanne. We thank you for them. And we pray that, God, you would use the, the coming generation of men and women who are trained to go out and teach and lead to build your church, God. 
Make us faithful people. Forgive us for not living on the knife edge of eternity like we should. So speak to us, God. Use us. Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.